You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Wow, you guys are really, really blessed. You got a pastor who clearly loves you and loves you enough to see that you're educated on this important issue. You got a pastor who supervises an Awana program, which turns out little prodigies like Decker. <laughs> I mean, oh, what an incredible, what an incredible display there. It's, it's, it's a really, really, really hard act to follow on that, <laughs> on that. And, you know, you just, you just talk about and you, um, you uphold the word of God so faithfully. And, and that starts at the top and through all the other ministerial staff and everything that goes around it. So I just wanted to thank the pastor for the invitation. Um, I'm very, very thankful to be here. And I also want to pass on a word of encouragement from me to you. I speak in a lot of churches, um, usually 40 churches a year. <laughs> so that's gone a lot. On these places. And um, I want to tell you that the churches that I speak to in California, in California, come second to none, second to none in terms of their zeal and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his word. Why do I say that? Because I know I live in Texas right now. And clearly, California um, in the Christian community, a lot of times is disparaged, like you're like in the in the in the in, in a land of of terrible apostasy and all this other kind of stuff. And there's like this call to leave and to come out and to move to Texas or do something like that on all of those things. And I want to say to you, thank you for staying. Thank you for keeping your light shining. And thank you for being so faithful and firm in the word of God. On that. So that's just an encouragement. It's not flattery, but it's an observation. There. And I know you're here in California because if I would have said that to Texans, they would have given me a standing O for that because that's how they, that's how they feel. So what I'm going to talk to you about today, it's clear about creation evolution. It's a whiteboard talk because everybody loves whiteboard talks there. But it's based on a debate that I did. In California, I, I'm, I kid you not, Californians are really into things. And it wasn't too far from here, north of here in a town called El Segundo. El Segundo. And I debated two people from two other organizations, one from BioLogos. And this organization is totally evolutionary. Totally evolutionary. They believe evolution was God's way of creating. One in between called Reasons to Believe. And one from ICR who believes this is the word of God. It's historical record. God created exactly like he said he did. It was hosted by a young man named Sean McDowell. His dad was Josh McDowell, who was a famous apologist. And Sean posed three, three good questions, really good questions, that everybody should have an answer to. So if you have your bulletin, there's a thing called sermon notes in the back. I saw it on there. So I spied it out. These are to write down the questions. And so we're going to cover them on this whiteboard right here. And the, the board moves. Look at that. See? Moves on there. And, and when it moves, 
I can write right on the board and I write real fast. So bang, there it is. <laughs> and since I was in California, I want to start with question number three. Why? Because Californians are, are what? Countercultural on that. We're anti-establishment or you are. And this was question number three. And I started with it because it's really the stumbling block for many people. And that was, are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Now, that was, that's like the science-oriented question, but it was at the end. And I know the reason why people have a lot of doubts is because it's the science. They think the science says, they think the science does this. So I want to deal with the science right up front. And so since I'm from ICR, my answer to that question would be what? Yeah, yes, I am. No, schmo. I'm not that countercultural. Man, alive. Yes, of course I'm open to the natural world pointing to design. Of course I am. And then I said, it's the workmanship. The workmanship that we see in these living creatures, which is best explained by intelligent design. Now I probably would have said intelligent engineering because it's better than design. And I picked the word workmanship on purpose because that's the word the Lord uses. In Romans chapter 1, he says, Invisible things of God are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Made. Now, that word made in Romans 1 is used only one other time in the Greek in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And there Paul says, We, you and I, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, this really made a lot of sense to me. It says, when you look at creation, you should see evidences of workmanship, craftsmanship, handiwork. These are words that are used in the Bible. And this little clicker in my hand, it shows evidences of workmanship. You know what it shows? Multiple parts working together for a purpose. Does it not? Yes, it does. And when you see multiple parts working together for a purpose, there is only one source of that craftsmanship, and that is a real intelligent mind which engineered this. Now, when you look at me, do you see some incredible, phenomenal, over-the-top good parts working together for a purpose? Yes, yes, you do on that. Just ask my wife, and uh, she will say, he's got great parts. <laughs> I wish they'd all work together. Anyway, so that's what we're seeing. Workmanship. I could talk about the eye. I could talk about your cardiovascular system. I could talk about your ear. But I want to talk about the heart of where evolution goes, and that is adaptation, adaptability. Wow, is that cool? Yeah, that's it. So this is a great example of adaptation, and evolutionists use it. Caves. So down on the bottom right-hand side of the screen, you'll see fish. You'll see some fish with eyes, and you'll see a fish with no eyes. The ones with eyes are pigmented. The ones without eyes are hypopigmented. Those fish are the exact same species. Those fish can mate with each other. But the, we don't know exactly how, but when those surface fish with the eyes somehow get lo locked in a cave, washed into a cave, in some period of time, not 8 million years, they lose their eyes in pigmentation and they go blind and hypopigmented. Hmm. Now they use that as an example of evolution. I'm going to use that as an example of incredible engineering. Incredible engineering, which is going to enable these fish 
to fill these different environments. And why am I going to say it's engineering? Because I read the technical papers every single day. And as I'm reading papers, scientific papers that are talking about adaptation, I am not reading random genetic change as a mechanism, as the cause of it. I am not reading anything that talks about a, a willy-nilly, non-purposeful mechanism. These are the words that I put up on the screen, which I'm reading. Mechanisms that are regulated. In fact, not just regulated, but they usually say highly regulated. Adaptation, which is not gradual, but rapid and repeatable, and sometimes even reversible. Organisms can go this way, and then they can go that way. And that their changes are so targeted to solve a specific challenge that they're even predictable. Now, evolution was never supposed to be predictable. So when you're hearing these words, regulated, repeated, rapid, predictable, you are hearing words of engineering and not a random, purposeless, mindless process. So we need to point this out. We need to take these people on a journey through the major icons of evolution. And, of course, cavefish are one. But we always talk about the blind cavefish. You know how I know it's engineered? Because not only do those fish lose their eyes and pigmentation, their heart changes, their red blood cells changes, their feeding behavior changes, their schooling behavior changes. In other words, a whole suite of changes happen in these fish which enable them to live in the cave. And it's not just one species of fish which can lose these features and gain other things. In other words, the features are down-regulated. They're not broken. Over 280 different kinds of fish can do it. That's quite a bit, quite a bit. And we know it can be modulated up and down because these researchers in 2013 were mimicking what certain proteins would happen during development as these fish are developing as a tiny little egg. And they were able to demonstrate that you could go from that, that fish up there with the pigmentation in the eye to the fish at the bottom without pigmentation in the eye, not in 8 million years, but in one generation. Hmm. Hmm. One generation. One generation. These fish can do that. That's quite remarkable. And evolutionists think the eyes are gone because the mechanisms are broken. And we say, no, 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 no. These, these eyes are modulated up and down, and pigmentation can be up and down. And we took some of these fish in the hypopigmented state without their eyes, and we put them back in mimic river conditions of sunlight, same intensity, same wavelengths, and they regained their pigmentation. The system wasn't broken, and they were as pigmented as a surface fish in 30 days. 30 days. Hmm. Different assumptions, different things. But here's another icon of evolution. It's called Darwin's finches. And we're told, oops, there it is. There's the finches. Darwin's finches. Darwin's finches. We're told that the beaks are separated out because of struggles to survive. And sometimes they have a big beak to, to crush big shells on seeds and smaller beaks and the like. But that's totally wrong, too. There was a study that was done just a few years ago on these same finches, Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. And they studied two different populations of finches. We'll call them the rural finches, which were still living in the country, eating typical rural finch food. And then they had urban finches, finches that had moved closer to humans. And because humans throw food where? Out the windows and in trash. These finches, 
began eating human finch food. Because there is such a thing. But what they found was this. These beaks could change in as little as two generations. And not only just the beaks, but other parts of them changed, which made them more adaptable for living in an urban community. And it wasn't genetic changes. Genes did not change. What was being changed were mechanisms which control the regulation of genes, and those are called epi, epigenetic mechanisms, mechanisms which are above the genome. And they regulate when genes can be turned on and off and how long they run. And this paper pointed out, like many, many, many do, that these epigenetic mechanisms give evidence to suggest that these birds can how fast adapt? What does it say? Rapid adaptation. Rapid adaptation to those things. So there are other mechanisms than slowly mutating one part of DNA at a time. Here's another icon of evolution. It's these moths. You all saw them in your textbooks. The peppered moths. And you're told that there were all of these white moths in England, and then they started burning coal, turning everything black. The white moths stood out like a sore thumb, and then they got picked off by the birds, and the black ones became dominant, clearly an evidence of evolution. Wrong again. Research was done, and this paper just came out several years ago, indicating that wasn't exactly how it happened, but it was due to another epigenetic mechanism. It's called transposable elements. And here's a surprise. Your DNA is not static. There's tiny little molecular machines which can go through, and they can change your DNA in real time in adaptive ways. And in this particular case, a piece of DNA was snipped out and transported. That's why it's called a transposable element. Snipped out, transported, and repasted in at another spot on the chromosome. And where it's pasted in is at a section called a promoter, a promoter for black pigmentation. And when it's pasted on, the moths go black. 96% of the time, and of the white moths, 0% have them. And the paper on the lower right-hand side of the screen is by a researcher who sees how organisms, when they're exposed to different environments, regulate the position of these transposable elements. Highly regulated, not random, incredible mechanisms. Let's look at a couple more. Here's a guy. He lives in Minnesota. That's where I went to medical school, up there. And he's smiling, not because he's caught a big pike, but because it's winter. And Minnesotans, they just love the winter because everything, everything they do that's fun in life, they do in the snow up there and those things. And so, in fact, I think they hate the summer and that. Anyway, he's got that fish. That's a predatory fish. It's, it's a pretty good predator. And it, it'll eat a trout. It'll eat a bass. Or it'll eat one of these carps right there. And what's interesting is when this carp is eaten and that fish digests it and it puts back into the water those digested little carpy vapors, the other carp in the water, this is a crucian carp, it can detect that one of their cousins was eaten. And when it detects that, it begins to change shape from this to that shape in as little as a day, a day. And in that new shape, it's bigger, taller, and faster, and harder for a pike to eat. 
Wow. But it doesn't do it if a, a trout's being eaten. It doesn't do it a bass. Only if it's one of their friends. Hmm. Wow, that's quite remarkable. They, they're able to adapt purposefully. Does that sound purposeful to you? Quite purposeful. Here's another purposeful adaptation. So we go from Minnesota down to the Caribbean. This is a reef race. W-R-A-S-S-E. And there's a male and female pictured there. The male is brightly colored, blues and greens, and the female is yellow. Usually there's a group where you have one male and about 10 to 15 females. And this one male covers all the females and keeps them happy on that. But what happens, what happens if that male dies or a fisherman comes by and fishes the male out of the group? What are those lonely females to do now? Well, they can detect when the male is gone. Not only can their little group detect that, but they can detect which one is the biggest female. And when that is detected, within a day, her ovaries begin to regress. She grows testes and will morph into a male. Wow, that's incredible. And remarkable what females have wanted to do forever. And uh, it's just like, wow on those things some of them are like oh yeah wow is that a purposeful change highly purposeful highly purposeful regulated and all of these things here's my last example this one it's got a catchy title what does it say mice can warn sons and grandsons of dangers via sperm and this is a fascinating Fascinating experiment, which was done. They took, they took these male mice and they put them on a metal pad that could shock their feet painfully, but not lethally. And then they would expose them to cherry blossom odors and shock their feet. This is your tax dollars at work, by the way, on that. And they would expose them and shock them, expose them and shock them, shock, shock, shock. Then they took these male mice and mated them with a naive female. What do they mean by naive female? Not what humans mean. They mean a naive female, one that hasn't ever been exposed to cherry blossom odor. She had pups. And then I hate to say they sacrificed the pups immediately upon birth. And they stain through the olfactory region. And they're looking for olfactory bulbs and nerves, which stain blue. And this is what they found. On the left-hand side of the screen are olfactory bulbs. It's a little bud, and the nerve is a long streak of mice whose dads had never been exposed to cherry blossom odor. They were controls. On the right-hand side of the screen is the olfactory region of the offspring of the dads who had been exposed. And they stained over 200% increase in olfactory bulbs. Guess what they're specific for? They're specific for cherry blossom odor odor. So these offspring are already primed and ready for something that could be a danger to them. And it happens in one generation. And it was not a genetic change. It was an epigenetic change. So how does all this work? It works in the same way that any highly adaptable thing that humans engineers make. It's like there's a cruise control. And all those things have three essential elements. It'd be good for you to even know what they are. That cruise control has a speed sensor, 
a speed sensor, and then data is sent into a computer inside the, com- the car. And it says, if the car is slowing down, then do this. If it's speeding up, then do something different. And then there is an actuator to the throttle of the car. So there is a sensor and logic and output. Sensor, logic, output. All organisms adapt using those exact same things. They have sensors. In fact, there's myriads of sensors. You have myriads of sensors. And they're detecting things which you're not even conscious of right now. And then information is sent in to the cellular level. And even before it ever gets to the DNA, it is being processed. It's being processed in an if-then way. If you detect this, then do that. And then you have specific output responses, which we have seen can be highly, highly elaborate. And your changes are not due to your environmental exposures. Your changes were engineered up front. In other words, the Lord built into his creatures solutions to problems before they ever met the problems. Just as real engineers would do with that space shuttle when they figure out all of the challenging environments it's going to go through and they put the solutions to the problems and the, the, the astronauts are very thankful they do. And that's exactly how it works with creatures. And so this is a new thing. And if there's nothing else you take from this message today, this is a very important point. Evolutionists and evolutionary theory, it, it, it frames organisms as passive modeling clay being shaped by their environment. Wrong. Totally wrong. That whole system is to eliminate the whole idea of purpose and agency from the mechanism. What creatures really are is not passive modeling clay. Creatures, as I've demonstrated, are really active problem-solving entities. Active problem-solving entities which can detect challenges, solve those challenges, and they're fruitful and multiply and will fill the earth with engineered capability up front right from the beginning of creation to do exactly what the Lord commanded him to do. So what do we want to change from? No longer see him as what? Passive modeling clay being shaped by, but active problem solvers shaping themselves. Big difference. Big difference. Wow. Now, all of that was really important. Because I know I presented things that some of the people had never had before. And I know that many of them had doubts about this book because they thought the science was questioning it. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to raise doubts in their minds about their doubts about this book. I wanted them to begin to doubt what they had been taught. And that is the first step to no longer doubting. The book. And that brought us to the second question, which was asked, which was this. What is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with Christian faith? Now, that's a great question. You should have an answer to that. What's your take on Darwinian evolution? What do you think 
in terms of its compatibility with Christian faith. A neighbor might ask you that question. Someone on the bus, someone asked me on the shuttle bus from the, from the airport to the car rental place yesterday. Hmm. So people have those kinds of questions. Well, here's an answer to that question. That's actually two questions. And as I said in the first service, this is a, a, a great answer because it's mine on that. <laughs> Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory. It's a weak scientific theory, and it is a poor explanation for the design of living things. In terms of compatibility, the basic premises of evolutionary theory are incompatible with biblical Christian faith. Now, I added the word biblical in there because people have different phrases and takes on Christian faith. So let's go to the first one. Why is it a weak scientific theory? Because if you're going to explain how organisms evolve, you got to get organisms going, which means you have to explain how they got here to begin with. And as this paper shows up on the screen, nobody has a clue of a natural origin of life. Because in order to explain a natural origin of life, you need to explain how organisms reproduce. Now, it's hard to get multiple generations until organs can reproduce. You have to explain how they can adapt, how they grow, and how they can metabolize. Organisms do all of those living things, and nobody is even close. And as I have said multiple times in major universities, there is not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet which documents a natural origin of life. Now, that isn't how it's presented on TV, I know. It's presented there as, as a very certain as scientists are really, really close and they're just about ready to figure it out. Totally wrong. Nobody's close. And they're no closer than they were 20 years ago on explaining this. And if you're a professor here, you teach at one of these universities and you think they're close and you think when I said there's no paper, I will change my words, just bring me the paper. But nobody ever has. That's how, that's how far away truth is from what they present on television. And then second, not only do you have to get life going, but you have to be able to change it from one kind of creature to a fundamentally different kind. And in all of human experience, with zero exceptions, nobody has ever seen one creature change into another creature. And there is not a scientific paper published anywhere on the planet which documents this. There are literally millions upon millions which fill in that major gap with imagination and speculation and extrapolation, but no real observation. Hmm. And this is what we really see. That's why it's a weak scientific theory. It's a weak scientific theory because theories are supposed to make predictions, particularly big ones, which can be confirmed or not. And they made some predictions. They predicted, as it shows on the left-hand side of the screen there, that life would start out very primitive and over a very long period of time branch off into all the major body plans and body types. But when we go to the fossil record and we look at the lowest layers which have the, the animals there, all of the major body plans show up at once. Essentially all of them with no evolutionary ancestry behind them. They predict that similar features would be due to common ancestry. The common ancestors, why you have similar features. But we find similar features on a fish and a mammal. We find similar features in the eye between a cephalopod eye and a human eye. 
for the common ancestor is way back. It's essentially gone. And the genetics for echolocation for that bat and that whale are identical. Hmm. That's why it's a weak scientific theory. It's weak because a lot of things they told us were totally wrong. They told you that your appendix was a, was a vestigial organ. But I knew in med school in the early 1990s that it had a function in the immune system. They said that the bone that all of you are sitting on was a vestigial organ from your ape-like past, and that's why it's misnamed a tailbone. Well, when I got into anatomy class, I saw that that so-called useless tailbone was anchoring muscles, important muscles, in your pelvic floor, which are functioning right now. And I'm glad they are, and so are you. <laughs> on those things. Wow, on all those things. I was taught that babies had, had little, they, when you looked at them as embryos, had these little folds, which were gill slits. I learned in med school that those folds develop into your lower jaw and the glands in your neck and other things like that, and they never have gill tissue in them. Nothing remotely like it. I was told that DNA, which didn't code for proteins, which was 98% of it, was junk, useless, left over from our evolutionary past. And why would God put so much junk in there? Explain that. Subsequent research has shown that that so-called junk DNA is regulatory. It does code for things, and it regulates the other protein-coding DNA, and much of it is absolutely vital for life. Totally wrong on that. I was told that humans and chimps were genetically 98, 99% similar to each other. I later learned that that was wrong, that the data was cherry-picked. And in fact, a recent study, which was just published last fall, compared the Y chromosome between humans, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans, and it found that between us and chimps, we were only about 26% similar. Hmm. And if you compared us to gorillas, we were about 24% and, and orangutans on that. And more. And you know what's also interesting? When you compare chimp to gorilla, they're only about 26% similar too. Hmm. That's very, very interesting findings. So it's a weak theory because it's just wrong. It's, it, I would, this was wrong on this, what I was told. When I was a kid, um, the left-hand side of the screen is what I was told about Neanderthals, that they were these brutes, and they were like a caveman and all of that. And, that's, and, that, and that led me at the time to think about evolution, and I believed it. But now I know that, human, that humans and Neanderthals mated with each other. And that's the only picture I could find that tells that, you know... <laughs> on those things. Oh, well, you just had to be careful. Anyway, hmm, and all of us have Neanderthal DNA in our genome. Huh. It's also weak because it depends on so much imagination. I keep using that word imagination, imagination. If you look on the left-hand side, of the, the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see an artist's rendition of Lucy with very human-like features, very, very human-like features. In fact, if you put lipstick on Lucy there, <laughs> she would look an awful lot like a Texan. You know that? I mean, it would be, uh, it's, that's only, it's true. I live in Texas anyway, and so, wow. At any rate. It is so good to hear people laughing at Texas. Anyway, 
The main point is this. Look at the bones. Look at the rendition. Do you see a bit of imagination between the bones and the rendition? And it's not just in the 70s that they're doing it. In 2015, Homo Naledi came out. There's the rendition. There's the bones. Weak scientific theories depend on all of this imagination. Their predictions are wrong. Statements were wrong. Imagination, it is a weak, weak theory in spite of what everybody says on that. What about the second part? Compatibility with Christian faith on those things. It's incompatible. These two people, when I was a kid, they were very, very famous. Mary and Lois Leakey. They were famous anthropologists, and they wrote a book called Adam's Ancestor. But they were atheists, so they're not talking about the same Adam that is mentioned in this book. They're talking about some evolutionary ancestor, which they're going to just arbitrarily decree is to be Adam. So their story is this, is this evolution of humankind. How compatible is that with biblical Christian faith? Well, this is a biggie. The Bible says that Adam was a direct creation by God. Direct creation, which means the Bible says that God took what? Dust of the ground, formed him, breathed into his nostrils. And not not only was Adam a direct creation, Eve was a direct creation. The Bible says Adam and Eve were direct creations by God, and they they didn't evolve from some long ape-like ancestry. In addition to that, the Bible says that Adam was the first man. And the Bible also says that Adam and Eve were the first pair of people. It's unambiguous about that. But evolutionists say, no, that Adam wasn't the first man. In fact, you can't even determine who the first man was. And they say that humans could not have evolved from a pair because we couldn't have got all of our genetic diversity. They're wrong on that. And that we had to evolve from a population of 10 to 100,000 ape-like creatures. Wrong on all of that. It's incompatible. Not only that, and this is the biggie. The Bible says that a real man named Adam brought real sin and real death to all of humanity, meaning all of us needed a real savior, a real savior. And that is a major, major divergence. But it doesn't just stop there. Most of the time, creation has stopped there. I want to point out two more areas that are really important where it's incompatible. On the screen there, on the left-hand side, you'll see a lion taking down a zebra who's running for its life, totally exhausted, and about ready to, be, to give up and be eaten. Well, now, I know we've grown accustomed to those thoughts, but evolutionists claim that that whole death scene is the means to good. And Darwin ended his book by saying, through the extinction and through the killing of one animal after another, leading to major extinctions, led to the higher forms of life, including us. And he said, there is a grandeur to this death-driven view of life. And other major evolutionists who are very thoughtful, like Stephen Jobs, buy into that. And so when he was dying of pancreatic cancer, giving a commencement address at Stanford, he said that death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. 
And he is echoing evolutionary theory exactly. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that death is a what? A curse. And the Bible says that death is an enemy. And the Bible says that enemy is going to be destroyed. So what you really see on this hand side of the screen can only be summed up in one word, and that is gross. And even though you have become accustomed to it, it is not normal. And I am looking forward to the day when the lion will lay down with the lamb, and this will be gone once and for all. And you should be too. That's why it's incompatible. In addition, the Bible says that we can see his handiwork. And that's what you see right here. You see, you see gears on the screen. Those aren't man-made gears. Those are God-made gears. And those gears are microscopic. You've got to have a microscope to see them. And the gears connect the back legs of that little insect up on the screen called a plant hopper, which launches itself from zero to 700 G's, and it wants its back legs to extend at the same time. So the Lord Jesus, who made this creature, connected his legs with a bunch of gears. Hmm. And the Bible says it's totally rational and reasonable when you see gears that you should suppose that there is a gear what? Maker. But evolutionists say, no, no, no. This is all an illusion. Mother Nature really crafted these gears. Mother Nature did it. Mother Nature shaped these passive organisms. Mother Nature is the pseudo-agent. And the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says we can clearly see these designs. And for these reasons, evolutionary theory is incompatible with biblical Christian faith. Unless you change the book to mean all kinds of different things. Which then brought us to question number one. But I wanted to deal with question the last is this. How do you understand and interpret Genesis 1 and 2? How do you interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2? That's a great question. Someone may come up to you. How do you interpret it? Someone may come up to you. How do you understand this book? What is this book? And so these are good questions to have an answer to. So this was the answer to that. Genesis 1 and 2 are historical narratives. They are real history. And everybody who wants to weave in evolutionary theory, they will not say, they cannot say that this is real history. They must say that it is an allegory or a metaphor or something different. So take home point number three, Genesis is real history, real history. And it's in, in one and two are historical narratives of the creation. And how do I interpret it? Well, I give words their normal meaning in their normal context. And some people say literal meaning. But when I was at Moody, Moody Bible Institute, they said, no, you interpret this book normally, which means it's the same way that you would interpret any other type of literature. You just give the words their normal meaning. Let me give you an example right here. I'm a physician, so I write these. I write these prescriptions. And this is one for a high blood pressure medicine called atenolol. Some of you may be taking it. Atenolol. And if you have really, really evolved eyes there, you can read it. Atenolol 
150 milligrams by mouth daily. Now, that's, that's easy to understand. I want you to take a Tenolol, this dosage, by mouth daily. So you take your script and you go to one of the pharmacies, I won't name them, and you give it, and the pharmacist says, well, but, well wait, what does Dr. Galuza mean by mouth? By mouth. Mouth of a river, mouth of a cave. What's he, what's he, what's he talking about by mouth? So he changes your instructions to say this. A tenolol, 150 milligrams, by a natural opening daily. Wow. <laughs> On that... You know, you read those instructions, and I have no clue where your pills are going, you know, uh, uh, on that. But in context, when I say by mouth, I mean this. Before I went to med school, I was an engineer, civil engineer. I was in the Navy, and I was stationed on Guam. And we had a barracks rehab project where one of the specifications said the the contract will put two coats of paint on all of the walls. Well, this contractor came out, put on one coat of paint on all the walls and all the rooms and demobilized. And we said, hey, contractor, huh, read your contract. It says you'll put on two coats of paint. The contractor sent us a letter and said this. What the contract means is one coat thick enough to equal two coats of paint. Huh. And we said, no, what the contract means is, what? Two coats of paint. Well, this baby went to court. No. It went to court. And I know some of you may be cynical and think the government lost, but in this case, the government won. The government won. And the judge said this. Hmm. In contract law, words must be construed to their, what did he say? normal meaning in the context of the specification. Otherwise, the intentions of either party becomes unknowable. You know what that means? That means when some people take the book and they make the words mean whatever they want the words to mean, then the intentions of the Bible giver become what? Unknowable. Unknowable. And that's why we give words their normal meaning in their normal context. And then someone's going to say, well, well how, how do you know that this is historical? Well, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but Dr. Boyd is. And he can look at Hebrew narrative and, and historical passages. And he can look at the words in poetic passages. And there's a major difference. And you can plot those. This is an objective finding. And Genesis 1 and 2 plot right out on historical narrative. But here's another reason, which I think is even far more important. The picture of the guys you see on the screen are known as reformers, reformers. And they were leaders in a process that took several hundred years called the Reformation. And one of the things they reformed was the view on biblical clarity, biblical clarity. Now, we don't talk about it a lot, but it's really, really important. What was happening in the church before then? Well, there was a Bible. Many of you guys wouldn't have been given a Bible. You wouldn't have even been allowed to own a Bible. And the church was saying to the people in the pew, you know what? This book is, a, is, is it's kind of mystical, and you can't understand it for yourself. But I can. I'm a holy man, and I can read it, and I can understand it. 
and I will tell you what it says. I can read it, you can't. I can understand it, you can't. You, the average person in the pew, you must be dependent on someone to tell you what the book means. The reformers said, that's hogwash. That's hogwash. And that's wrong. And you know what they recognize? This was a case of biblical authority. Because when you're not reading this book for yourself, and I'm telling you what it means, who is your authority? The book or me? Me. That's exactly right. And I could control you on that. And they said, no, God, God, when he communicates, he says what he means, and he means what he says, and anybody can read it and understand it if they have a good translation. And what did they point to? They pointed to several passages. Up there on the screen, you'll see Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's a good one because Moses had just given the law. And Moses said, and that, those verses, when you read this book, I'm going to paraphrase it, you don't need to go across the ocean and get someone and bring them over to tell you what the book says, but you can understand it. In fact, he says, it's near you and it's in your heart. And when the Lord Jesus was speaking in those John passages, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will lead you into what? All truth. He didn't say when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead the holy man who will tell you what the truth is. He says he will lead who? You into all truth. And then the Acts 17 passage describes the Bereans who were more noble than the Thessalonians. And the Bereans, the Bereans themselves were searching the scriptures to see if what the apostle Paul was telling them was true. So if you, the person in the pew, can check up on the Apostle Paul, then you can read it for yourself. Oh, I can't tell you how important this is. Our Christian ancestors gave their lives for many of these Reformation issues. So why should we, why should we say, I, I, can't, I can't understand it. It's really complicated. I need to have a science guy. Or I need to have a holy guy tell me what it is. The Reformation said, no, you don't need to have a holy man here to tell you what it is. You know what that means? That means your pastor can expound this truth. He can save you time. He can show you things, but you can check up on him. You can. Sorry, pastor, but uh, you probably would agree with that. Of course he would. And you can check up on me. And not only do you not need a holy guy to tell you the Bible, you definitely don't need a science guy, especially when these science guys are atheists and atheistic, which means that you could take a good copy of this Bible, give it to those Alka Indians who have never heard of Stephen Hawking, and they can understand this book. They can understand it. This is really, really important. Here, one final objection. Some people are going to say, you know, you, you Bible believers, you literalists, you're really, you're really hurting the church. You're really hurting evangelism. You're driving people away. They're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you're loco. And nobody's going to be attracted to your faith at all. You need to get with the times, see that this book is allegorical in many ways, and embrace evolution. Well, two researchers, two secular researchers, basically check that out. They looked at three different views of the Bible. In red were those who thought it could be allegorical and it could be stretched to accommodate everything. The middle line 
are churches who saw this as the authoritative word of God. And then those people who thought it was a book of fables. And then from 1990 to 2015, they tracked church attendance. Wow, that's an interesting measure. What do you believe about the Bible? What's happening to your church? And the so-called liberal churches were hemorrhaging membership over that time. They were losing them hand over fist. And churches like this, which stand on this book, were maintaining membership or growing membership. And unfortunately, the people who were leaving those other churches were going to non-affiliated. So don't let someone tell you your views on this book are outmoded, outdated, and harmful to evangelism to the church. Totally wrong. It's the opposite. When people come through these doors off the street, they want to hear something different in here than what they hear out there. Not the same thing. And so praise the Lord that you are doing that. And then the Lord Jesus took the words very normally, very literally. And what's interesting is in this passage, when someone asks him, Lord, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He quoted in his answer from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, back to back in the answer, where he said, actually, I haven't put it up there. Have you not read? Have you not read that from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female? Genesis 1. And the man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be what? One flesh. Genesis 2. Right together in one answer, Genesis 1 and 2, normal history. And when the apostle Paul was speaking about life and the resurrection, he also held to a real Adam. He says for this, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection for the dead. For as in who? Adam. All died. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Hmm. Paul is pretty good too. So here we have three answers to three key questions. That Hopefully this was useful to you. You'll be able to use this in talking with your friends. But there's really a fourth question, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't cover the fourth question. The question is, where are you? Because the Bible says there's only two groups of people. And they're, and, and they're not rich people and poor people, not white people and black people, not all the things that we divide over. The Bible says there's only two. You're either in Adam, lost, dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God through Christ. You're either in Adam and you're lost this way, or you are in Christ, forgiven, born again, renewed with a hope of eternal life. Where are you today? Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? Anybody and everybody in this church, and nobody knows anybody's hearts, would say to you, come to Christ today, and he will give you life. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.